It's Tuesday, July 15th, 2014 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So I've been playing around with what? What? The app. What? W-U-T. What? Describes itself as a semi-anonymous chat. Here's the iTunes description. What? is a social app that lets you send anonymous ephemeral messages to your Facebook friends. Anonymous. And I guess if the message lands you in court and the judge is all like, what's up with what? You can plead the fifth-ish or something. Can I get a what, what? Yo, can I get a what? Yo, yo is another app that works sort of like this. I barely need a full sentence to describe yo. Press the screen and yo sends your friend a message. Guess what the message is? Here's a hint. Blank MTV Raps. Blank Adrian. Blank no soy marinero. Blank no soy marinero. Soy capitan. Okay, it's you. Yo. Hey, in Israel, it's an Israeli app. In Israel, if your friend is the rocket warning guy, it will literally send you a yo before the rockets have been launched from Gaza. There are many more tested ways of avoiding a rocket from Gaza, but... Yo, at least has a life-saving purpose to justify the fact that it got a million and a half dollars in funding because it's yo. So I think the next cutting edge in technology is going to be the new app, Sup. Sup. And after that, it's going to be Head Nod. It's not its name. It's just it detects when you're given a head nod, and then it gives your friend a head nod. Not even a head nod. It kind of transmits a little squinting of the eyes. Yo, sup, eyelids. Barely communicating. It is the next wave in communication. But we will, in fact, be talking on the show today about Pharrell's favorite subject, not big hats, happiness, happiness research. And in the spiel, the amoeba that will eat your brain and maybe chew your patience. But first, brokering a real election in Afghanistan. Crisis averted. It's not as gripping a headline as conflagration underway, but the situation in Afghanistan is one of crisis averted, or at least delayed. As recently as a week ago, the candidates in the presidential election were at a standoff, each side alleging corruption. New details have emerged that a breakaway republic was very nearly announced, but in no small part thanks to the intervention of Secretary of State John Kerry and the creation of a newly empowered office of prime minister, the Afghan election is back on track. Jonah Blank is a senior political scientist at the RAND Corporation. He served as policy director for South and Southeast Asia on the staff of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He has a doctorate in anthropology. Hello, Jonah. How you doing? Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So Afghan elections, was there really true uncertainty or was this just an opportunity for the presumably losing or at least trailing candidate to press an advantage? There really was uncertainty and there still is. We still do not know who is going to be the next president of Afghanistan, and that's what makes this outcome really encouraging. It isn't a cooked result. Uh, We are going to have a genuine, legitimate counting of all the ballots. And also they changed the structure of the government to emphasize more of a parliament. Uh, This leads me, first of all, to think that I know America did democracy first. The evidence is there that we haven't exactly perfected it. Everyone who chooses to do it after us likes the parliament. But that does give the loser or the losing party more of an opportunity to exact uh, influence in the government, right? Yeah, a parliamentary system is much more flexible than a typical 
presidential unitary system, as it's sometimes called. And if you want evidence for it, just look at what uh, the deadlock and gridlock in Washington today looks like. Uh, that's not necessarily a model that uh, we would be looking to export to other countries if we were starting to do it right now. So let's look at the Indonesian elections again contested. This is a not as new a democracy as Afghanistan, but 16 years since the uh, dictator went away there. What are we to make of this? First off, Indonesia has been a great success story in democracy, but it still is very new. Transition to democracy in Indonesia came only three years earlier than Afghanistan. And we've got a starker choice in front of us that the Indonesian public is, has already made, but the votes will be counted over the course of the coming week, than has ever been seen in Indonesia before. The candidate who is leading is named uh, Joko Widodo, Joki Widodo, uh, universally called uh, Jokowi, and he has no ties whatsoever to the old Suharto regime. He's seen as Mr. Clean, Mr. Get It Done, very much a man of the people. His opponent, Prabowo Subianto, is a former lieutenant general, commanded the dreaded Indonesian special forces. He has virtually admitted to kidnapping and torture. Uh, he is accused of having attempted to stage a coup d'etat. He also is a multimillionaire, and his brother is a billionaire. And Indonesia is a place where uh, being a billionaire still means something. And the former general is right now on the losing side, but he seems like less of a guy who'd be incentivized to say, yes, let's really have an honest election. Yes, I, those words have probably never come out of his mouth. In fact, unusual for a candidate seeking election, he has publicly ruminated that maybe Indonesia has too much democracy and we ought to go back to the years of so-called guided democracy, a.k.a. no democracy. But this wasn't a disqualifying stance for him to take. I mean, he almost honestly won the election and could possibly actually somewhat fraudulently win the election. Or even honestly, the votes have not been counted yet, so we really won't know for another week or so. So I look at what Secretary Kerry has been doing the last few days, flies to Afghanistan, works out uh, a solution there, but then flies to Europe and tries to work out a solution with or at least to foster, you know, some progress on the question of Iran and nuclear weapons. Very much of a hard slog. Some are suggesting he needs to go to Israel, broker a peace between the Palestinians and the Israelis. And I see the reason or at least maybe a big reason why you could get progress in Afghanistan, but not these other two places, is how much leverage, as you mentioned, just how much money the United States gives to Afghanistan. I mean, they kind of have to listen to us, whereas Iran certainly doesn't. That's absolutely true. And it's not just about money. It's about military support. It's about diplomatic support. And it's, it's about the fact that if the United States pulls out of Afghanistan, everybody pulls out. Uh, everybody that is except for Pakistan, Iran, and perhaps a few other players with their own agendas. So we've got a lot more uh, at stake and a lot more leverage in Afghanistan than we do just about any place else in the region. All right. Jonah Blank, senior political scientist at the Rand Corporation. Thank you for this globetrot with us. Thank you for having me as always. Warm gun, a warm puppy, the best revenge. 
Happiness inspires lots of crazy ideas and crazy quotes. The brainy quote page for happiness has all these pictures, all these kind of successory style posters of nature shots with these quotes from people who probably never really said it, like the Dalai Lama supposedly said, happiness is not something ready-made, it comes from your own actions. All right, that's wise. Uh, John Barrymore said, happiness often sneaks in through a door you didn't know you left open. Mahatma Gandhi maybe said, I'm sure he didn't, happiness is when what you think, what you say, and what you do are in harmony. All of these prescriptions for happiness are the sort of things that make you go, ah, but do they really change your life? Can you aspire to them? Can you live by them? And happiness is just now starting to be understood and really studied by scientists. Well, Sonia Lubomirsky is the author of The Myths of Happiness, and she joins me now. Thank you for coming on. It's great to be here. Thank you. I saw a listicle in some online publication. That's why I wanted to talk to you. And there were a bunch of tips for being happy. Imagine the best case outcome for the coming months and set an intention for the day. And one of the things I think you talk about is being very connected and telling people uh, how grateful you are for them. And it just seems to me that there's a cause and effect thing going on. And that happy people will naturally engage in those behaviors and unhappy people will find it difficult to. But you're saying that we can if we are among the group that is less than happy or less than as happy as we want to be, we could make ourselves into more happy people by doing the things the happy do? That's right. That's actually exactly the approach. So early on sort of in the happiness research, um, a lot of us compared people who are happy to those who are less happy. And we found that, yeah, happier people are more forgiving and they're more positive and they're more grateful and they're more spiritual, they're more likely to exercise, et cetera. And so, and so that was just a correlation, right? So it doesn't mean that, that if you're not so happy and if you do those things, if you kind of train yourself to have those happy habits, you'll become happier. So that's where experimental research comes in. And so I and, and my colleagues have started doing what we call happiness interventions. And so mm-hmm. these are basically like clinical trials, but instead of testing a new treatment or drug, we're testing happiness strategies. So if you take kind of a generally kind of normal average person or, or an unhappy person and you instruct them, like, try to be more grateful this week or do three acts of kindness today and again next Monday and again the following Monday, then we find that people actually do become happier. So... Write a letter to a high school teacher that you liked or tell tell an older relative how much they mean to you, that sort of thing. That sort of thing, exactly. There's, there's probably a hundred strategies that you can use. Um, so we've done a lot of studies testing gratitude, asking people to write gratitude letters or to count their blessings, usually maybe once a week for a period of four, six, or eight weeks. Sometimes we ask people to go out and do acts of kindness that they don't normally do. Uh, we've done this with kids, and we find that kids who are asked to do acts of kindness, not only do they get happier, but they become more popular with their classmates, which is kind of amazing. We ask people to try to be more positive about the future, to be more optimistic. We ask people, okay, try to savor positive experiences more today, you know, when you're taking a walk or eating, a, eating something for breakfast. Um, so absolutely, these are sort of intentional activities that we can do that can kind of step by step, little by little, can make us happier. Right. But even you acknowledge that a lot of this is just hardwired, right? Yes. Oh, absolutely. So um, research shows that about 50% or so of individual differences in happiness are influenced by genetics. Okay. So we, we know, we look around us, some people are just naturally 
happier than others. But that's also true for weight. That's true for, for lots of things. It doesn't mean that we're doomed to have a certain happiness level. This is that if we're born kind of a, with a lower set point for happiness is what we call it, we just have to work harder to achieve more happiness. And then other people are just lucky. They don't really don't have to work hard at all to be happy. Okay, now I want to ask you a question that has always fascinated me. Um, it's more of an observation about myself. I don't know why, but my perspective is generally a positive one. I could list a bunch of things that, you know, would lead people to say, wow, why are you happy? You recently got divorced. You don't own an apartment. You whatever. But then I could also list all these bunch of good things and say, yeah, I choose to agree or choose to identify with the good things. Now, if I was a depressed person or on the unhappy side of things, there'd be all this analysis to tell me why. But I just think that since I'm on the happy side of things, people just say, oh, yeah, let it go. Don't even think about it. Do you think I should be analyzing it more? No, no. And in fact, I actually did a study with my students that showed that when it comes to positive things, you do not want to analyze them. You want to just kind of enjoy them, savor them, maybe replay them, kind of when you think about the best things in your life or the best events. But when it comes to negative things, analysis actually helps. So if you, something bad happens to you, oh. it does serve you well. It's adaptive to kind of analyze it and sort of come to terms with it so you can learn to kind of get past it. But for positive things, you don't want to analyze them. And, and by the way, what you're describing is sort of exactly what the research shows, which is that much of happiness is inside of us, right? It's not so much dependent on your life circumstances. As you said, you may not have ideal circumstances, but you still kind of look on the bright side. And another person might actually be really great. They might be happily married and have a big house and, and sort of everything they want, and yet they're unhappy. What are, and what's the wealth component? The wealth? Well, money, you know, is related to happiness. You know, absolutely, people who, are, who have more money are, are happier. Um, but after a certain point, there's not a huge difference. Uh, and really what matters is, how, is what you do with your money, right? So if you're wealthy but you spend your money on, you know, traveling or, or growing as a person or sharing it with your family or friends or giving it away, you know, being a philanthropist, that's going to totally make you happy. But if you spend your money on sort of a big, you know, material possessions that you keep in your house or your garage, you know, you're just going to adapt to those things, get accustomed to them, and you're not going to be happy. What about in places where people do live on a dollar a day in sub-Saharan Africa? We do find happy people, but it is much rarer. Right. I mean, I think we would be surprised because people have a remarkable ability to adapt to their circumstances. So, so if you are able to, if you have sort of your very, very, very basic needs met, obviously, like if you're not going hungry every day uh, and you don't have any safety, you're not going to be happy. But you have your, if your basic needs met, but like very, very minimally, and everyone else around you is kind of in the same boat, so you don't have that social comparison that could make you unhappy, then you could adapt. And, you know, what researchers find is that even in the most sort of you know, depressing circumstances, people still have relationships. They have kids that they enjoy. They have their, they fall in love. So those things still make them happy, of course. But, you know, you would find that on average, you know, they're less happy than, than we are because they don't have sort of the things that we have. Well, let me say that this conversation made me very um, fulfilled. Ah, uh, thank you. I don't know if uh, I would go so far as say euphoric or blissful, but uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Happy. Yeah, I think so. Sonia Lubomirsky is the author of, among other books, The Myths of Happiness. She's a happiness expert. Thanks a lot, Sonia. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Huh, because I'm happy. Come along if you
And now the spiel, a brain-eating amoeba. A Spring Hill girl dies after exposure to an amoeba, and she may have gotten the infection from a local lake. Deadly brain-eating amoeba. All this little girl did was play in the water. It is real. It is deadly. And I'm actually not making fun because after swimming in a lake, a nine-year-old girl in Kansas died from this amoeba. It's called Negleria filari. But it is rare. It is extremely rare. At this point, most responsible news reporters make, but not after some scary talk. Hearing about the potential risk for a deadly amoeba makes Hansen a little wary. So how rare is the amoeba? Well, three people on average are affected a year. There have been 128 cases since 1962. And there have been hundreds of millions of exposures because it lives in freshwater lakes. And no one knows how many lakes, but the thought is it's really quite common. But infection, which happens when the amoeba enters the nasal passages, is unbelievably rare. So the irony is that the amoeba's rarity is what makes it news. It's new. It's unusual. But in fact, it's so unusual that you could argue that it doesn't even raid coverage, certainly not the scary coverage it's getting. The chances of getting this amoeba are one in a hundred million. So when a young person dies or is infected and lives, which happens, but it's really rare, it's certainly understanding that local communities would want answers. And the answers, as given by the CDC, as given by Kansas officials in the case of the nine-year-old, whose name was Haley Eust, who died died last week, and by Arkansas officials earlier this year, those answers are fairly consistent. They emphasize how rare it is, but they talk about precautions you could take, like wear nose plugs, don't kick up sediment in a lake. But here, a local Kansas station makes another recommendation. So when you're in lakes and ponds, keep your head above water. Really? When you go swimming in a lake, don't put your head underwater to avoid a one in a hundred million occurrence? And then later, the same Kansas station said this. Also, avoid water-related activities in shallow, warm, freshwater areas. So the station there was echoing a statement from the Kansas Department of Health's website, which reads, Though the risk of infection is extremely low, the following precautions might decrease the possibility of infection. Avoid water-related activities in warm, fresh water during periods of high water temperature. So a lake, warm, fresh water, on a hot day, when you first step in, you know, it's hard to get to the deep part of the lake without first going into the shallow end of the lake. So this strikes me as impractical. It more than overly cautious. It's like frightening and impossible to follow. The Centers for Disease Control doesn't say anything about warm water and shallow water. But I understand the uncertainty. I understand the concern. And I understand the appeal of arming the public with some safety tips. But I do have to tell you, What gripped me most about this story was not the outrage or the slightest bit of surprise that the media are drawn to the phrase brain-eating amoeba. And it wasn't that parents would be naturally worried about brain-eating amoeba. It was the words of the Eust family. Here now is Haley's dad. I want you to know that this tragic event is a very, very rare and not something to be fearful about. To be so poised to realize just how rare this occurrence was, and also to make it a point of emphasis in your public comments. And it was indeed a point of emphasis. That last line I played wasn't just a cast-off. He came to this point again and again. Here's Sean Eust returning to the extreme rarity of the event. You're more likely to die from drowning than you are to ever from dying from this organism. It's like a one in a billion. This girl was a one in a billion. I'll tell you what else is truly uncommon. That kind of wisdom and that kind of perspective amidst a 
terrible tragedy. The Eust family added in a statement, we hope you will not live in fear of this rare infection that took our daughter's life. And that is it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi, producer of Slate Podcasts, is contented and gratified without being elated. Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, is doing cartwheels like a pig in slop, which is to say, very awkward cartwheels indeed. You can subscribe on iTunes and give us a review. We are on Facebook.com slash Slate Gist. Tell me what you thought of the spiel today and yesterday. I like getting the feedback. I never know if they land, so Facebook's a good place for that. So as email, you can email the gist at slate.com. And if you want to subscribe to our email, it's at slate.com slash gist email. Go there, sign up. We'll send you the email. I am Footloose and fancy resistant. I'm not entirely free of all vestiges of fancy, but that state is enough for me to heartily say thanks for listening. <laughs>